The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at www.overlandpark.cc. We've been talking about the kingdom and how it moves. Okay, so like, like there's been this, like, I think that the people in the church, they got the wrong idea. The church is not really doing it. And I say the church, like Universal, is not really doing a good idea of t- or good job teaching people what it means to become a follower of Jesus. And so we've just taught them that, okay, you need to make sure that you know Jesus and you get saved and then it's over. It's not over. Like, like that's when it begins. And there's so much more about the kingdom that's supposed to be happening in the midst of our lives on a daily basis. And so we see that the kingdom moves. Like it, 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 the whole agenda for Jesus was to set up a kingdom that he would rule and ultimately he's returning to the planet, okay? And, and I think that sometimes we read our Bibles and we look at the Jewish people and we see that when Jesus came as the Messiah, how could they have missed him? How could they have not known that he was the Messiah? Now I feel the way that the church is in America today, if Jesus were to come back tomorrow, there are a lot of people that wouldn't know. Like they wouldn't be ready wouldn't be observing, like, wouldn't be living a, a, according to the kingdom. And Jesus has said that, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my kingdom a kingdom that is spiritual, that rules in the hearts of men. And so they were looking for a physical kingdom, and, and Jesus came and brought a spiritual kingdom. But when he comes the second time, he's coming for a physical kingdom to claim the earth for his own. And all of those who follow him will be a part of his kingdom. All of those who have uh, come to know him as their personal savior. And so we look at the crucifixion of Christ and even the Jewish people rejecting him uh, as the Messiah. Um, it kind of, if you stop to think about the injustice of it, it really displays the wickedness of man. It's like we would take something, someone as, as incredible and as powerful as Jesus, the God-man, and crucify him on, on, a, on the cross of Calvary. Well, again, we'll learn in our, our text today that that was, that was foreordained of the Lord. That was, the, the, that was God's plan to save humanity. But, it, but still we see the responsibility of man in it, and we see the injustice of it all. And I don't know if you've ever thought about the people that participated in that. And I don't mean, I'm not referring to the leaders, I'm referring to the approving mob. Like there were people that, that were not, that we always give the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests and all the priests that, that ruled in that day in the, in the Jewish temple, we always give them a bad rap. And, and so we should because they, they missed it. Like they missed and they were disobedient. Jesus was very hard on them himself. Um, but I'm referring to the people, the normal people, the people like us, the people that um, were not the leaders. They were just normal people that were part of the crowd. And, and Pilate, the Roman governor, we know that he tried to let Jesus go. Like he didn't want anything to do with him. As a matter of fact, the Lord was like, like God was supernaturally imposing upon Pilate's wife dreams. And she sends a message to him and says, don't have anything to do with that guy. And so Pilate's trying to get out of it, and, but he's got a problem, man. He's got the Jewish people are starting an uproar and a riot, and they're claiming that Jesus is, is claiming to be a king to to take uh, the place of Caesar. And so they get him in this terrible spot that, 
They were threatening that they're going to riot if he doesn't do something with this Jesus. And yet he looks at Jesus and says, I, I don't find any fault in this guy. There's nothing worthy of him. And so we see a very unjust thing. And so the, the, the leaders, the Jewish leaders, went through the crowd and they had set the whole thing up, man, after they had uh, secretly arrested Jesus and, and, and falsely accused him of blasphemy. Then when, when daybreak happens, they're, they're working the crowd and they're firing them up and the crowd is out there. And we, and we see that... Um, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, Matthew chapter 27 says, when, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. And he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified and that's how that's how like bold they were he said man i'm not responsible for this he washes his hands publicly as a sign that he owns nothing to do with this decision and the people proclaim and the mob the the normal people his blood be on our hands and on our children's hands and in fact it was what would you say to these people if you had an opportunity to confront them i give you you watch the Passion of the Christ, it makes you angry. The scene makes you angry. You look at it and go, what? Why? Why are they doing this? And, and you want to confront them. You probably think of a few choice words to blast them with. But today we see how the Lord Jesus uses his people to confront the guilty. And so we in our text last week, we saw where the Holy Spirit has come. Like he's entered the world. First time it's ever happened. He has descended upon the planet individually and people. He corporately was with the nation of Israel, and he supernaturally would overcome a prophet from time to time or a king like David, and he would supernaturally empower them to do things like Samson, and the Spirit of the Lord would come upon them. But when we get to Pentecost in the New Testament, after the Lamb of God has been slain to take away the sin of the world, the Spirit of God descends upon all of the believers. There's 120 of them up in the room, and they, they are sitting in the room, they are praying, and we learned last week that the sound of a violent wind comes charging in, and it's, it is a violent wind so much so that the entire town heard it. And so people are making their way to this room. And so people are like, they're, they're drawn to the sound. What is that? Just like if we heard a sound and we went outside and we heard a loud sound, we'd want to go and see what was going on. In 1995, I was um, in college sitting in my classroom, and uh, the bomb went off in Oklahoma City. Boom. We were in class. We was like, what is that? And we learned after we got out of class, man, it was a bomb, and immediately you wanted to go down. And I did go down. I was able to go down and drive by. And it was, I'll never forget it. It was just such a powerful experience. The image is still burned in my mind. Uh, see that building as I drove by one side and made my way around the other side, and, and it was just, like, gone. And so it just made an impression upon me. And so I was drawn to that place by a sound. People were drawn to this place, this upper room by a sound, and so they were coming from all over, and they made their way to this room. And as they find this room, the, the, the Spirit has already descended down upon these 120 people, and they come out, and they're they're speaking in tongues, it says. They're speaking in languages. And all these different people groups are there because they've made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to be able to uh, um, 
um, uh, observed the, the Feast of Pentecost, the giving of the law, but, but God is showing He's changing things, He's shifting things. And so all these different people groups, all these different language speakers, they, 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 they had their own native languages, and these 120 people come out and they are speaking and the people are able to understand them in their own language. And what's fascinating about this is they were Gentile people. Now, why is that important? Because Gentile people were simple folk. We might say country folk. The simple-minded, farmers, uneducated people. Not that farmers have to be uneducated. My wife's dad was a farmer. He had a master's degree in education, a degree in law, and an undergraduate degree in teaching. And he's used it all to farm. <laughs> so, very, you don't have that. But, but you, you get the idea is that, that um, he, the, the, these people were Gentile people. They were normal people. And here they were speaking in other languages. And it blew the people's minds. They were like, what is going on? And then, uh, so some of them were asking, what does this mean? And then others were making fun of them. These guys have had too much wine, man. They're just drunk. Look at the way they're acting. And so Peter addresses them. Now, let me remind you that these are the people <laughs> that were there in Jerusalem earlier when Jesus was crucified. Remember, Jesus spent 40 days with them. So about 50 days earlier, they had been to Jerusalem on a previous trip to observe Passover. And Passover and um, Pentecost were two festivals that they, uh, uh, th th there were three big festivals and these were two of them. And so they came back to Jerusalem. So these were the people that were part of the mom that said, crucify him, crucify him. And so they're making these statements and all of a sudden it says that Peter stood up with the 11. Now this is, this is fascinating because Peter has gone in hiding. Peter has gone from denying Jesus, denying that he even knew him, to now he stands up in the midst of, of the crowd. What has changed in Peter? What has changed is he has received the fire of the Holy Spirit. It now rests in him. And there is a boldness and there is a courage about him. And it says that he stood up with the eleven and all of them stood in unison together is what we gather from that. And he raised his voice. Now, th this is a really cool thing. The, when we look back and we study church history, this is known as the a kerygma, like a sermon. And so you will see sermons, a biblical sermon usually has all of the elements that this particular sermon has. And so one of them is raise your voice, amen? Oh, listen to a boring preacher. Please open to Luke chapter 12. <laughs> Be quiet, Jimmy. <laughs> so he says he raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. And he says, fellow Jews. And I love this because, man, again, these are the people that were responsible for shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And how does Peter confront the guilty? He gets down with them. And he relates to them, fellow Jews, we are all together, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. Let me give an explanation of what is going on that you see happening. And he says, listen carefully to what I say. And I would encourage you to do the same thing this morning, to listen carefully to what I say and give some serious thought to the words that are shared to you and make a decision as to whether or not you believe it is true. Listen carefully to what I say. He says, these men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. And people don't get drunk at nine in the morning. He says, no, this is, 
what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so here we see he's jumping back to the Old Testament. And this is what happens with the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes upon your life, He does not supersede Scripture. And there are some that will teach that. That it's just a Holy Spirit-driven world. No, it is not. The Holy Spirit has a job to do, and one of His jobs is to illuminate the Scripture for us, to lift the veil on Scripture. And that's exactly what happens to the apostles, man. As they receive the Holy Spirit, man, they are starting to break down the Word like nobody's business. And when the Lord gets a hold of Apostle Paul, as we'll see later in the book of Acts, man, he is a dangerous individual because he knows the Word, but then the Word and the, the veil is lifted for him, and he understands the Word through the lens of Jesus, and it shifts the entire movement of the church as we see the kingdom of that uh, advance. And he says, no, um, this, is, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He says, in the last days... And what do they mean by last days? The last days means that when the Messiah would come, the last days would begin. What does that mean? The last days until the consummation of the final coming of Christ when he returns and time is no more. Like we're headed toward that. And he said that Joel prophesied that in the last days, what would God do? I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What is he talking about? He's talking about the return of Christ that second coming, the perusia is what we refer to it as, is the first coming Jesus comes as a suffering si uh, servant. In the second coming, he comes as a conquering king. We read about it in the book of Revelation. It is a apocalyptic literature about the end of time when Jesus returns to call all of his people to himself. And he says, man, Peter saying, look what you see happening to these people speaking in these languages and this power and what you're witnessing through my, my speech even coming to you right now in this moment is what the prophet Joel prophesied about. The last days have started. Now, interestingly, he quotes all of what Joel prophesies there, but not all of it has taken place. And what does that mean? It means that we're living in the last days, that everything from the time of the coming of the Spirit until the time of return, the return of Christ is the last days. And he says, in those last days, we know that as he's referring to all the symbology of the, uh, of the moon and, 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 the, and what happens in the sky, it is, it, is, it is a picture, an apocalyptic picture of doom. It is the wrath of God. God. And the wrath of God is not something you hear taught about in the church very often. But as we look in the first sermon in the New Testament, it is there. And what does he say? He says, man, Joel said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from what? The wrath of God that is coming upon the planet that we're all heading toward. And so like we look at that and go, whoa, man, the Lord is trying to say something to us. And then he says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. 
What does he mean by that? He says, you watch Jesus. You saw him heal people. You saw him do incredible things. You saw him do stuff that no, no normal human being could do. As a matter of fact, they were confused about the identity of Christ. Some referred to him as a prophet. Why did they refer to him as a prophet? Because he could do things that they knew that the Old Testament prophets could do. He had the miraculous ability to do the things like Moses. You know, they would always look forward to, the Jewish people always look forward to a prophet like Moses. It's interesting that in the New Testament, as you read the Gospels, one of the questions they ask of Jesus, are you Moses? Like, like they were anticipating, not, not Moses, but the one that Moses talked about. Are you that prophet? And so they were anticipating that the Messiah would come and, and he would have this very prophetic power. And he says, you know that he did all of this. Like, so he's referring to these people who were part of the mob who were shouting, crucify, crucify him. And he starts talking about Jesus. And he says, um, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. What does that mean? Is it means that this is the way that God had determined that he would enter into a loving relationship with humanity. Love is created in the fact that God had the foreknowledge to see that he would come as himself and be the sacrifice. Why? So that we could experience love and we in turn could decide with our free will whether or not we would love God. Like God won't make you love him. In his foreknowledge, he's made a way that you can choose to love him, but just as well, you can choose not to love him. What does he say to them? And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. What is Peter saying? Now listen, you gotta get, you gotta go, you gotta wrap your mind around this. All of these people, their entire lives had been raised, like that passage we read and, and as we dedicated the children this morning. Talk about this when you sit down and eat, when you walk along the road, tie them as frontals on your foreheads. Like the, 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 the Jewish people were taught to always look forward to the coming of the Messiah. That was their great hope. Even still today, they're expecting that because they are rejected Jesus was the Messiah. Okay, and so like, he's saying, in saying this, he's saying, you dudes killed the Messiah. You killed the one we've been waiting for our entire existence as a nation. It's like hard news, man. But God, he said, raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Like death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't contain him. Why? Because he was sinless. He was the God-man. He was fully God. He was fully man. And he never sinned. You know, one of the things that you read all about the things Jesus prays, he talks to the Father, he gives us all these examples. You know what Jesus never does? But he tells us to do? Repent. He never confesses sin. He never acknowledges doing anything wrong. Why? Because he didn't. He was perfect. And so the, the grave couldn't hold him, and God looked at him as the perfect. God the Father looked at God the Son as the perfect sacrifice, and God knew it was the perfect sacrifice, and so the curse of death could be lifted from humanity. And then he, again, he jumps back to the Old Testament, and he starts referring to the Old Testament Scripture as he says about David. He says, um, David said about him, I saw the Lord 
always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Right? So he says, you remember, brothers, when David said this and he wrote this about um, and it looks as though David is talking about himself. But watch, has the veil of... And this was a confusing scripture for the Jewish people. They couldn't wrap their minds around this. It, it confused them. But when the Holy Spirit came and the veil was lifted, this, this fisherman explains it to them because God has shown it to him. He says, brothers, I can confidently, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. What he's saying is, you know, there's no claim that David is not in the tomb. We know where his tomb is. We know where he's buried. We celebrate David's life. But he says, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne, seeing what, we, what was ahead. What he's saying is that, prof, that David was prophesying. He was, uh, he was foretelling the future. He said, seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. This is a very powerful thing to, to understand here. A lot of times you're going to hear people who are skeptical say, man, I, I can't do that Bible, that mythology stuff. This is an eyewitness account of what happened. Like Peter is saying, you see all these 120 people? Like the Jesus that you crucified rose from the dead, and we've been hanging out with him for the last 50 days. And so like we stop to think about that. And people tell us, man, it's a blind leap in the dark. No, it is not. It is based on evidence of the testimony of many witnesses, not just two or three of which we can convict a man uh, in the court of law. There are many witnesses that testify that they interacted with Jesus. It says that he, God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. He exalted, um, to the right, he exalted him to the right hand of God. He has received him from the... He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and he has poured out what you now see and hear. He's like, you see these people, what's going on? You see me preaching in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. I'm reminded of what Paul says. And he says, you are being a witness that what Jesus said would happen is happening. He has poured forth what he prophesied would happen through the prophet Joel, which is amazing in and of itself. That, that hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, the prophet Joel recorded something like this would happen. After the death of Jesus, something like this happens. Duh. Like it takes faith to believe in something besides Jesus, if you ask me. And so we look at this and we see, man, like he's saying um, that, that the Spirit would be poured out upon all people. The Holy Spirit's fire would come. And he said, for David did not ascend to heaven. And yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool over your feet. In the sermon, man, he is just unpacking the word of God for them. A simple fisherman empowered by the Holy Spirit can blow the mind of anyone because God is speaking through him. It's what's missing in the pulpit today is people who preach through the power and demonstration of the Spirit and they're just giving us a bunch of educated opinion which is the last thing the world needs. Like we need the fire of God to descend down upon the planet and do a transformation in the hearts and lives of people to call them to a place of obedience. 
And he says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He not only is the Messiah, he is the Lord of the universe. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What do we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all, who is it for? For all whom the Lord God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. Save yourselves, he says. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And boom, the kingdom has shown up on the planet. We have a church. We have transformed people. We've moved from 120 to 3,120. Why? Because the kingdom has moved and some men responded. Now, there definitely were more than 3,000 there. So there were some who responded negatively. And so as we look at this and we see some things, I see some things, I want to make some observations about it to kind of share with you to take away um, as you think about the truth of the word of God and what it means for you. Here, here's the first one. Get well. Verse 41 says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Now, if you study the scripture, you'll see that the gift of salvation is a gift. You can't save yourself. So what does this mean? Is it a contradiction of scripture when it says save yourselves? No, it's coming from the Greek um, word sozo. And it means to get well. He's saying get well. Don't be like everybody else. Get well. Now, what does he mean? All of us, we are all infected by the disease of sin, and we must be cured. There's never been a human being who hasn't been infected by the disease of sin. And so we must be cured from the disease that exists inside of us. Like, we got to come to that place and understand all humanity is diseased with sin. This is why people die. It doesn't matter how much money we raise, and hopefully I do hope we, we find a cure for cancer. We will still die. Why? Because we're diseased with sin. And so the only hope for us is to be restored into a right relationship, is to be cured of our sin disease that we have. And when, you, when I say that, here's the second thing I make an observation about. You will either get ticked or you will get pricked. And we see that people in, the, in Acts, they get upset about the things that are being said. And they violently try to stop the message of the gospel. And so whenever you hear something like I just said, that you are diseased with sin, you either get ticked or you get pricked. When the veil is lifted from your heart, you will be pricked. It says that they were cut to the heart. What does that mean? Um, again, the King James says that they were pricked to the heart. It is the Greek word katanousomai, and it means to pain the mind sharply. Like when you hear that you are a sinner, and, and if you're going to come to a place where you know God, 
And this, I'm convinced, this is where the church is missing it, man. Is these people aren't like the, the, the ministers of the, of the word of God are not doing an effective enough job of teaching people, look, you gotta deal with this sin problem in your life. It is real, it is the most important thing about you. And when it comes, like you in order to get right with God, you have to be pricked in the heart. You have to pain your mind sharply. You have to be broken over it. And there's why. And this is my third observation. When we realize we are in danger of being lost forever, it is then that we may be found forever. If we never think we're in danger, we're never going to be found. One of the hardest things about finding a lost person, if they wander out into the wilderness, one of the most, like the success rate of finding a person who doesn't stop is not good. Like they teach you, if you ever get lost in the wilderness, stop and stay in one place. Like just stay there. Um, They say to hug a tree. Like just stay with that tree so that people can find you and you do not increase the search area and they can begin to look for you. You are lost. Stay there. You have to realize you're lost before you can be found. And that's what I see in this passage of Scripture is that we must realize that we are in danger of being lost forever. That's why Peter talks about the wrath of God and he shares about the prophecy of Joel. And he says, man, this day is coming. And I would say to you, like all of you, the day of the Lord is coming. It doesn't matter if anybody lives like it. It doesn't matter if the most educated people say, oh man, that's ridiculous. If the word of God is true, then the day of the Lord is coming. Like, and when he comes, for those who are not right with God, it is a day of wrath. Why? Because if God is going to maintain his justice and who he is and what we find in his holiness in scripture, there must be consequences for sin. Like if, 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 if there are no consequences in wrath of God, what do we do with an evil, wicked person like Hitler? Like, are we okay with him just being right like any, all the evil in the world and anything a person does? There are no consequences for it? No, we're, we're not okay with it. Well, guess what? Hitler is a, an extreme perversion of sin run rampant, and every person has the disease in their heart, and the only cure for it is Jesus. And the only way to receive Jesus is to first of all realize you are guilty and that you need him. If you don't realize that in your life, then you are headed down a train wreck of eventually coming to a place where you experience all of the wrath of God. That's the only way God can maintain his holiness. Otherwise, there is no consequence for wickedness. And who wants a God like that? None of us. Like we said, well, it's not fair. What's not fair is that he would come and make a way for us to know him. That's what's not fair. So we look and we go, whoa, man. When we realize that we're in danger of being lost forever, then we may be found forever. The only hope to be saved is to realize you are lost. And then I see this. The kingdom moves when the Holy Spirit pricks our hearts and we change our minds. That's when the kingdom moves. Repent, he says, be baptized, receive forgiveness, and the gift of the Holy Spirit comes. What do we do when we realize these things? Repent, change your mind. Metanoia is the Greek word. Change the way you're thinking about this. Change your mind about Jesus. Change your mind. False repentance dreads the consequence of sin. True repentance dreads sin itself. 
Like when you truly repent, you will hate sin in your life. Like you won't hate that. It's not about what other people are doing to sin. It's about what you are doing to sin. And you start internally looking at yourself and going, I don't want this to be a part of me. And so Jesus will say to you, change your mind and believe the good news. That's how the kingdom moves. It's when we are pricked to the heart over sin and we change our mind about things and start believing. Take Jesus for your king and swear allegiance to him. Take Jesus for your prophet and listen to him. What did he say? My sheep hear my voice. They know my voice. And what do they do? They listen to me. When we take Jesus for our king, we are to swear allegiance to him. We are to take Jesus as our prophet. We are to listen to him. We are to take Jesus for our priest so that he can make atonement for us. Listen, I'm not talking about that I don't sin. I, 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 I fight sin with everything in me. I don't want to be a person who is engaged in sin. Why? Because I know that it strips away from my freedom. It strips away from the joy. It strips away from the fruit of the Spirit. But I would be lying to you if I said I was a perfect person. I'm not. But I have a perfect priest, and he makes atonement for me. And when the Father looks down upon Jimmy Holbrook, what he sees is a covering. It's all through the Old and New Testament. If you'll read the book of Genesis, you'll see that the man and woman were guilty, and God said, you are guilty, and now you shall die. Let me kill this animal as a symbolic sacrifice of what I'll do in two th or thousands of years in the future, and let me cover your nakedness so that you will not need to be ashamed. Remember the question, who told you you were naked? And so then we see he provides a covering. Over and over and over, for thousands of years of Jewish history, as God is establishing the nation of Israel, he's giving us picture after picture after picture of Jesus the Messiah when he comes in all his perfection. Is Moses the Messiah? The people thought, he must be the Messiah. Look at all the miraculous stuff he's doing. But Moses died because of disobedience, and he was a sinful creature just like you and me. Is David the Messiah? And we see that David was an incredible man of faith, and he slayed the giant, and he led the nation of Israel to this glorious place. But then we see he, he has the ugly stain of sin on his life as he commits adultery with Bathsheba and, 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 and sets up Uriah to be murdered. And we see David is not the Messiah. And over and over and over as they got hopeful about these different individuals who were incredible in their history, we see a type of Christ in them, but they never could get it done. Why? Because they always had sin in their life. But when we get to the New Testament, behold, a child shall be born. He shall be born of a virgin. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us, and he shall take away the sin of the world. He is in me. He makes atonement for me. And what makes me different from anyone else in the world is whether or not they know him. If they know him, they are my brother. They are my sisters. If they do not know him, then we are not family because he has not made atonement for them. We don't share the same bloodline, the, the paschal lamb, the, the sacrificial lamb of God that was forecasted, that was prophesied, that was visually given over and over and over. What more does God need to do for us for us to believe? What more does he need to do? Like, we read and, and like, we see, how, how could he do more than come and be one of us 
and die an unworthy death and give us a historical record that we could read about that cannot be disproved and ask us to bow down to Him as King of kings and Lord of lords. Repent, He says. Change your mind. And I notice that as He's delivering this news to them, He says, every one of you, individually, this is a decision that must be made. Just because the parents today made a decision to commit their children to the Lord, it does not mean that their children will yield to the Lord and know Him. Every person is responsible for taking their own free will that God has given them and to decide, will you love Jesus and accept Him as King and priest and prophet in your life? Or will you deny Him? That is the question that Peter is laying before these people. And when we see our sin and we receive our Savior, what happens is we are sealed with the Spirit. And Peter is saying, that's what you're beholding in these 120. And 3,000 of the people said, man, I, I, I'm cut to the heart. I'm guilty. I understand I'm a sinner. I understand that I'm in need of a Savior. Give me this Jesus. I repent. I change my mind. And the Spirit of God came upon them as well. How do I know? How do I know that the Spirit of God kept moving? Because I'm stand, one, like one good piece of evidence is the proclamation of the Word coming off of this pulpit right now. Like because of what they believed, I am here today. Because of what they taught, I am here today. Many of you are here in this room today who have been transformed by the power of Christ yourself. And so it serves as evidence as we look around and we see the kingdom advancing in the lives of other people. Here's the big idea. Change your mind. Believe the good news. Now, when we do that, like repent, and come out and go, what? I am a sinner. Like I know I have sinned. And that thought hits us and we feel the remorse for our sin, then the Lord is asking us to change our mind about the way we've been living and place our faith and trust in Him. When we do that, we are forgiven. Obstacles are removed and we walk in freedom. And I would say to you, that is how it starts, but it doesn't end. Jesus keeps asking us to change our mind and believe the good news. I, there are times in my life like Jesus would say, man, you need to change your mind right here and believe the good news, Jimmy. And so my question for you today as we land this, this sermon, as we take it for a time, you know, just have a few moments for decision before we receive the offering is, where is Jesus asking you to change your mind and believe the good news? Where is he asking you to do that? Is he asking you to do it with him as Savior? Or do you already know him as Savior? And maybe he's asking you to change your mind and believe the good news that he is Lord. Maybe there's something in your life that he's been challenging you with in a relationship. And he's saying, well, why don't you change your mind and believe the good news in that right there? You see, the Lord always is asking us to change our minds and believe the good news so that we can be set free to live lives of abundance here on this planet. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.